This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. This week on What's Ahead, you'll hear the second part of my conversation with the late Bernard Tyson, the former chairman and CEO of Kaiser Permanente, who recently passed away at the age of only 60 years. As you'll hear in both installments of this special two-part series, Bernard was a compassionate, visionary, and creative leader in the healthcare industry. He was a believer in high-touch medicine. He was a believer in reaching out to people before they got sick. And that pioneering effort must continue with others. He will be greatly missed. The second half of my conversation with Bernard in just a moment, but now, what's ahead? Well, we'll get more impeachment hearing stuff. That's going to be a lot of noise, but the president's going to remain in office. His fate will be decided by voters, not by members of Congress. Also, in a few days, Major League Baseball leaders are going to be meeting. What trades will take place? The big question of all for civilization. Will the Yankees get a good starting pitcher for the next season? Another meeting. Congress will reconvene. Uh-oh. Will they pass what they call USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canadian Trade Agreement? It's pretty good. If it ever came to a vote in the House of Representatives, it would pass overwhelmingly. Will Speaker Pelosi allow it to happen? That's the real question. And you're going to hear more about the Democratic race for president. Biden is being challenged now by Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, and also the former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg. However, at the end of the day, at the convention next summer, there may be another candidate emerging to rescue the party from all of this division, clamor, and too many candidates. Watch out for Michelle Obama. She has written a best-selling book. Her husband is adopting a very moderate statesmanlike pose these days. That will help her. So watch out, the surprises are still to come. And now we'll pick up where we left off, the second half of my final conversation with the late, great Bernard Tyson. You've made the point, high tech, great, but you have to have high touch. Yeah. And uh, technology in the home. Talk about uh, this one little statistic you recently gave about hip replacements, that uh, amazing what can happen now? Yeah. It, I mean, it's another example of where we are both in the industry and then specifically in Kaiser Permanente, who clearly is leading the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, I mean, even in my short time in healthcare, uh, one of the projects, for example, that I uh, oversaw at Kaiser Permanente was uh, when we built our cardiovascular program in San Francisco, I was one of the project managers that helped to um, implement that, working with, obviously, the physicians and everyone. And at the time, we were looking at statistics that after open-heart surgery, you probably would spend anywhere from three to seven days in the cardiovascular critical care unit, and then you went down to what we call a step-down unit, and then you went to the floor, and then you went home. And so you may end up spending, let's say, seven to ten days post-surgery uh, before you went home, right? Um, you now can go in in the morning and have a heart procedure done where we're going inside of your heart. Our physician is going inside of your heart, and you could be going home 
that night or the next day. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, when I was doing it back then, I never even fantasized a situation like that. Well, same thing is true now for joint replacements, that um, we have a goal inside of Kaiser Permanente that we think um, 60, 70 percent of, you know, hip and joint replacements can be done in the same day. And in some of our facilities, we're over 50% now, where you literally come in that morning and you're going home that evening. But what's going home with you are all the resources. So your home therapy, uh, it's not like you just come in for this procedure and that's it. There's a whole set of protocols that are happening before the surgery. And then you have the event, the surgery, and then you have the recovery. And all of that has been redesigned by the care delivery teams. And so you're at home with the therapy. And now we have virtual physical therapy, for example, in your home. So you can do it in your home with us virtually. And we have that rolled out uh, across many parts of our program. Is that so, sort of a telehealth? Telehealth. And so it's rethinking how care is provided and what we call care anywhere. And it goes back to the beginning of our conversation <clears throat> that when the healthcare system was designed, most of the services were designed to happen in a hospital. And it's not that everybody needed to be in a hospital. It was the convenience of, quite frankly, the internal providers, meaning everybody, that said, you know, the easiest way is to put all the resources in one location you in a hospital us. and then everybody come in. And what we are doing is blowing up that whole theory because we're demonstrating, no, you could be anywhere and get well, care. Give, 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 give us the example. Day. You uh, had something on your leg and uh, you were able to do it by uh, pictures rather than making the visit. To by the... pictures. I, I did the, uh, I had a, a problem on my leg. And uh, my doctor had me to take a picture of it. I beamed it up to the doctor. He took a look at it. He said, you know, this looks uh, like it's just a small, you know, bacteria infection or something. And just keep watching it. He gave me uh, some ointment that I should put on. Keep watching for the next couple of days. Send me another picture. I'll take a look at it. And I did it. And I took another look at it. And then he wanted to do a quick culture. And he had me to stop by right quick. And so I went into his office. And he had all this technology around him. And he took a picture himself, and then he showed me that he just had to punch a button off his phone, and then it went automatically into the main health system. So he didn't have to do any typing or anything. And then he ordered the uh, medication for me, and he showed me how he dictated, like I mentioned. He did this again, uh, although that time he didn't do what he did this time with the dictation. And all of that was done, and then the rest of my care was all virtual. It was just monitoring my care. So it wasn't coming in for another appointment and clogging the system. It was, is it curing correctly? And it was fine. And the care was beautiful. I mean, and I travel a lot for work. And so just think about that. All I have to do is just take a picture and beam it up, as I call it, <laughs> to my physician. And then he can monitor my health from where I'm at across the country, if not across the world. And so that's a totally different system of care than the previous system, which is everybody came in for an appointment or you came to the hospital for care. And well, we're actually working on models for care at home. That's the future that some, quote, hospital emissions that are going on now, we can monitor some of those things in a home environment 
because of technology and because of the new infrastructure. And so think about all the sensors that we now have. Well, those sensors are portable. They can go with you. What they call wearables. That's exactly right. And and so, you know, the future is bright for redesigning the whole health care system and the whole ecosystem, but it's also a challenge because of affordability. And, and so it will not do us good that we create all of this uh, and I would argue in this country, we end up with the haves getting everything and the have-nots not getting it. And so together, we have to think about the bigger societal issues as we continue to innovate and create solutions to help people to live longer, healthier lives. Which leads to, uh, sounds simplistic, but even more basic than healthcare is food. You don't have food, you don't have anything. And uh, we have government involvement in agriculture, but it's a pretty innovative system, high tech now in agriculture. But if people have problems getting food, we have everything from what we used to call food stamps to uh, food banks. Can we get the same thing in healthcare? Will we get this more and more dynamic entrepreneurship in healthcare? But we have systems to make sure that uh, you will get the basics. No no one's going to starve and no one's going to be without. That's exactly right. I I think that... Um, you know, the, the the beauty of our country, if you stop and think about it, uh, years and years and years ago, for example, we said that um, we're going to make sure that we take care of, for example, three classes of people. We are going to take care of the poor, and we created programs to do that. The Medicaid program is the creation of that philosophy that we have always cared about the poor. Uh, we're going to take care of the elderly. And so we created things like Medicare and Social Security and you name it. And we're going to take care of our veterans. And so we created the Veterans Bill and we create we have the Veterans Hospital System. We have a lot of things in place that demonstrates the evidence of our philosophy and our belief as a great country. Now we're in the 21st century where a lot of stuff is going on, as I call it. And there's no question that you know better than I uh, that the great economy that's been created over the last 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, pick your starting point, has produced amazing results. Um, And that doesn't mean that everybody benefited from that. And and so we find ourselves in this great place, but added complicated place that um, you know, that I hate the term, but people define it as the haves and the have-nots. I just hate that term, but that is a graphic definition of what you have. And so the the question is not to penalize people that's made it, that worked hard. I've worked hard for where I'm at. I didn't get a free ride. You know, I worked 24-7, and I grew up with difficult circumstances, quite frankly, a lot of them based on the color of my skin in this great country. But I didn't give up. I kept going. Well, I don't want somebody to penalize me because people, quote, define me as successful. But at the same time, I don't want to penalize the person who may not have had all of the um, opportunities or sponsorships or moments that he or she benefited also from the economy, and I call it, uh, you know, equal opportunities to success, not necessarily equal opportunities to the same outcome. 
So right. I want to create a level playing field for everybody to have a chance, but that doesn't mean everybody gets the same results, right? And so not, we're not everybody. We're not all going to be Michael Jordan. We're all not going to be Michael Jordan, <laughs> although I would work on that more and more if I could. <laughs> but the point is then as a society, we have to say, how do we as a society want to live and exist? And as I call it, how does history, how do we want history to be written about us? And I don't think I want history to write that I was a part of the 21st century in which we created the most wealthiest nation on earth, and we accepted that a portion of our fellow citizens call the streets of America their home. So, so I think it's both a health issue and a societal issue of what do we stand for now in the 21st century. And I think that's where we are with thinking about these complex issues that impacts individuals, but it impacts all of us. Um. I want to get to uh, uh, mental health, and uh, we mentioned earlier, there's still a stigma about it. What 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 are you and Kaiser Permanente doing to uh, take it out of the shadows and say there's a problem here, how we can deal with it? As you say, the brain is not separate from the body. Yeah. It, it, it's part and parcel of it. Walk us through your, your thinking on that so we uh, make progress and not just uh, just hope it goes away. Yeah. Um, and I'm so glad you asked the question. Uh, you know, I talk about it all the time. Um, so a couple of things to kind of frame the conversation around it. You know, first of all, uh, the, the number one expense for disabilities is around mental health, that the majority of people who are out on disability, uh, temporary or permanent, is because of a mental problem that they're having, right? Um, for young girls, uh, suicide is the number one cause of death uh, between the ages of 15 and about 19 to 20. For hmm. young people— Even more than autos. Even more than autos. Young people, it's 16 to 26 is the number two cause of death. Um, so you're talking about a big problem here that we're dealing with, and— we have in Kaiser Permanente and we have in the industry the facts to show that if you're suffering from a mental health disease, your lifespan could be cut anywhere from 5 to 15 years short than the normal lifespan because of mental health. The second thing is, uh, back to when we first started the conversation at a high level, for whatever reason, when um, earlier generations uh, began to work on health care, as I call it, for whatever reason, they detach the head from the body. And so when someone said they were having uh, uh, nightmares or some kind of mental illness, um, we designed the delivery system where they had to go over there for the care. And so we created separate medical record systems as, you know, in the early days. And um, society began to put a negative stigma on it. And, and I often said um, somebody decided they were not going to own the brain, the organ called the brain. Like today, uh, we own, as a society, all other parts of the organs of the body. So you have the American Heart Association that looks after the heart and how we can eradicate, eradicate uh, heart disease from um, existence. And 
You have the kidney association that pays attention to the kidneys, and you have the liver association, et cetera. And so we talk about the brain, and we, as a society, put negative names around mental health, and we called it bad things, that people were nut and nuts. And crazy. Yeah. Crazy. And, and we created movies about it, and we made it fun, you know, and— so we kind of like we used to do with dementia. That's right. We kind of normalized it, right? And and so now what we're faced with is a, a better understanding of how much mental health directly impacts physical health. And we can show you inside of Kaiser Permanente that we have had studies that we've done in uh, care delivery where the patient presented with a physical illness, but this we discovered in the process, it was related to mental health. It was lack of sleeping. It was the lack of energy, as they would describe it. It was the lack of eating. Um, it was the continuous stress that was on their minds. And at Kaiser Permanente, we have been redesigning a mental health services, integrating it, for example, with the rest of the care delivery and actually moving resources into the uh, primary care unit and those kind of changes that we're making, creating different access points. And now, and over the last, I would say, five years, we have been running this, what we call Find Your Word campaign. And that's a campaign to deal with stigma. And we have uh, solicited great support from celebrities who have helped us with this initiative and individuals who are willing to come forward and say, this is how I deal with stress. This is how you can deal with um, life challenges to uh, delicate situations. If you have suicidal tendencies, just find your words and then reach out to us at kp.org or reach out to the um, suicide number and you know, ways to get people to talk about that something is going on um, in my body that is not physical, it's mental. And and you're not alone. And we're not alone. That's exactly, you're not alone and we're not alone. And I sense, and we are tracking this very closely, that there is, we're finding more of an opening where we're starting to see the change in time where people are talking about it more openly. And that's really a major part of what we have to do. And then the second part is to redesign care delivery and, as I call it, reattach the head to the rest of the body. Um, one of the challenges is uh, legacy systems. You don't come in de novo. And uh, one of the ways you're pushing uh, new things is uh, KP Ventures. Uh, tell us a little bit about that initiative. Yeah. Um, I have been fortunate to uh, work at Kaiser Permanente for, I guess, 35, 36 years now. Proud of it. And um, I can't recall from the day I joined Kaiser Permanente to this day that Innovation has not been in the center of what Kaiser Permanente is all about. And uh, it I saw it when I first joined the company, and it's going on today as I talk to you. It's, it's just part of the DNA of Kaiser Permanente. A lot of it is evidence-based, and a lot of it is what I call uh, evolutionary. So it happens because of what we do every single day. 
And our physicians, our managers, uh, our employees are continuously thinking about, is there a better way to do this? Or how can we be more efficient in doing this? Or what is the evidence showing us that we ought to rethink as we do this? And so it evolves. And then what we have done as a system is we've taken those innovations in different parts of the company and we've figured out how to scale them across the entire enterprise. So we have all this great innovation that goes on every single day. When we created the venture organization, it was our acknowledgement that, you know, innovation is happening all over the place. There are people with bright ideas to make healthcare more affordable, available, and efficient, and effective, and all those things. And so with our venture arm, in a lot of cases, we go and we fund and become a part of startup organizations that's focused on health and healthcare. In some cases, we have a bright idea and who needs the resources, and in other cases, the resources and the platform to see if that idea is a reality. And so our venture arms arm give us this opportunity to invest in organizations, to also work with organizations to help them to realize their dream. And that has a direct impact on how we can provide more effective, efficient care and coverage uh, inside of Kaiser Permanente. And it's very, uh, very exciting. Uh, one of the challenges of the future, uh, experts tell us, is a uh, physician shortage. Uh, first, tell us about you, your unique medical school you're going to be opening in 2020, and what do we do about this shortage of uh, docs in the next uh, couple of decades? Yeah, you know, it, it's a combination of the uh, shortage of physicians, both from the standpoint of the pipeline of new physicians coming in, and it's also a major concern that we have on this topic of physician burnout, right? That, uh, and that's being discussed a lot across the industry about what's going on with physicians and other care providers who are, quote, at this burnout stage. So, um, number one, um, we continue to look inside of Kaiser Permanente how to make sure that we are um, uh, using all of our resources uh, around the practice of care. And so the team-based concept is in the center of the Permanente practice at Kaiser Permanente. So what is it that the physician specifically needs to be doing to care and make sure that he or she is providing the leadership for care for the patients and the members? And then what is his or her team doing? And so there's, a, as we call it, an entourage that takes care of a patient. And our members love it. Our members have trusting relationship with the lead nurse and with areas in the pharmacist. Uh, key experts who are part of the whole health ecosystem plays a critical role in the care of that patient as well, led by the physician. So we have that kind of system that we're looking at, and that is about leveraging the precious resources that we have now and into the future. We're opening up a medical school um, next year that we're so proud of. Uh, we have 48 slots that we're going to fill next year, and we opened the application process in late August, and it just closed, and we have over 11,000 applicants. My goodness. So what does that say? That say that the pipeline may not be the total problem, 
It's the how do we deal with the supply side of making sure that we have the most efficient and effective way to educate and train the future physicians. Well, in the center of the Kaiser Permanente Medical School is that question, is what's the best way to train a 21st century physician to practice medicine? We're not going to fill the supply side of physicians with 48 students coming out at a time. So that's not the purpose here, although these precious resources will be working at Kaiser Permanente and any other health organization that they might choose. But our agenda is really how to teach Permanente medicine and community health uh, and mental health and how to bring it all together in a environment of training and learning. And we think that's going to be the bigger contribution so of our medical school. So you're focusing not just on trees, but the, understand the forest Understand as well. the forest as well. And so really our agenda is to help the whole medical education and, and, and is to use it through what we're going to both teach and learn with our medical school program. We get to bring it all together in a learning environment that we think will serve a bigger societal purpose. So in some ways, it's going to be uh, studying in residency, I mean, hands-on. That's right, like. hands-on. Uh, in fact, uh, the program is being designed where within, I think, the first week that the medical student is there, they're in a health environment and also in a community environment, which is part of the whole program. That, you know, the residency of this program, while they're there, is both in a classroom setting and out <laughs> in the field. And so um, that's the theory that we're working on. The second thing is um, I'm very interested in this topic of physician burnout and because I think it speaks to, uh, rightfully so, physicians being very frustrated with the kinds of checks and balances that are in place that in some so cases— sort of always being second-guessed. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been at Kaiser Permanente, as I said, for 35, 36 years. I have never interfered with the relationship of a physician to the member to the patient, ever. Have I inserted myself and said, well, I think you need to call me to get authorization to do this procedure because I've seen this or whatever— it just doesn't happen. That physician is competent and capable, is an expert. Well, this Inside gets... of the medical group, they have their self-governing process, so they um, monitor each other, and that's the right formula that we need to look at. And then in our case, we're looking at with all this technology that we have brought to bear inside of our system, with the fact that a member now can have direct access to the physician— How have we increased the load on that physician of things that he or she has to do that maybe they didn't do in the past when the person had to present themselves for care? Well, those kinds of issues we have to solve to. And I'm pleased to see our doctors are working on those solutions about how to become more efficient. I gave you an example earlier where this week my doctor showed me how he was able to dictate on this voice system that then uploaded into our computer system. So it's those kinds of things that creates more efficiency in the 21st century, but also gives relief to the physicians so they aren't overburdened 
with the after effects of now what the technology has allowed us to do. Um, the AHA, a- AHA Hospital Association did a white paper talking about regulatory requirements. You've mentioned, too, the huge administrative burdens from regulations. Uh, what it seems like you're pushing for is instead of thousand-page books saying how to do something, state the goal right. and figure out how to do it. And if you do, great. If you don't, uh, there'll be repercussions. But more principle-based rather than trying to minutely manage your time every day. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and, and also now <clears throat> to get much more focus on outcomes. And, and so if you look so at the whole— if you achieve the right outcome— That's right. Yeah. You don't have to be second-guessed on how you get there. Yeah, and and you, you um, we are getting much better uh, inside of Kaiser Permanente for sure. And in the industry overall, you start to see this shift as well, where you really start to measure what really matters as you think about the whole set of resources and what we are all trying to achieve when we think about health and healthcare. And you know, we talked earlier about um, uh, uh, joint replacement surgeries. Well, one of the best outcomes to really measure is that functionality after all of this is brought to bear. So can the person um, now walk and go back to the normal life? And uh, is the person in pain and suffering? And is the person mobile? And so it's those kind of outcomes and then the ingredients that went into the outcome. And so you think about the ingredients, the surgeries, the resources used, more around how to be most efficient and effective to achieve the outcomes that really matters to people. You know, naturally, you want to make sure that the surgery was beautiful and everything went well. But more importantly, you want to make sure that you feel better and that you can exist and people want to have this independence, right? And so, after your surgery, what's really important, um, our members tell us this all the time, the fact that I was able to get up and walk, you know, four hours, five hours, two hours after this surgery is amazing. And then to build my strength from there and to have medical resources around you for coaching and exercise techniques and all the things to make you as functional as possible becomes a critical outcome. With the regulation, um, in in some cases, we have, um, you know, I want to be clear, there is a definite role for regulation in healthcare. So I'm not You're one. You're not an anarchist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, we have to have that. There have to be guardrails and uh, guideposts and outlines that we all have to follow. And, and so I, I'm in the front of the class around that. Kaiser Permanente spend a lot of time with our regulators to educate and to get them to understand because the evolution of medical care is very different today in some cases from regulatory requirements that we're trying to meet when we were, for example, a paper-bound system. Right. And and when we didn't have 24-7 monitoring tools inside of our hospital. So it's a very different health system now. And we're actually working with the governments, uh, in particular CMS and others, to really understand. And CMS runs uh, overseas Medicare and Medicaid. That's right. Yeah. To really understand 
in our case, what uh, an advanced healthcare system is actually doing and then how to think about regulations in that context. I mean, we started doing video conferencing, for example, early on, and we worked with the government to understand this is not a, quote, revenue system for us. This is an access system for us. And so this is a case where we're talking about opening up different avenues for access to care, not we're trying to pump more revenue into the program. Uh, in fact, in the Kaiser Permanente system, that's not even how it's set up. Well, that took a lot of work to get the government to really see it and to study it with us and to understand it. And that's why we open our doors up all the time to help the government to sort of see what's possible and then to compare that to other systems and the overall environment in the evolution of care. When a patient is in a Kaiser Permanente hospital, we have this philosophy that you will be as safe in our hospital bed as you are um, on an airline if you were a passenger. And so safety is mission critical as part of hospital care. How we have we, systems by, in how, place how we, now. By the way, do we get other hospitals? Infections are a huge killer of patients, infections you receive after you're admitted to the hospital. How do, how do we... Uh, Make more progress on that. Obviously, you've been in the forefront of that. Well, that's an area, for example, that speaks to the whole ecosystem of health. Think about what happens in the airline industry. And by the way, we used to have a, a pilot and safety trainer on our board, and he um, uh, happened to be the grandson of Henry J. Kaiser. Uh, and we now have on our board an executive who ran JetBlue. And we use the aviation industry a lot as an analogy inside of Kaiser Permanente. So think about um, how the airline industry treats uh, near uh, crashes and or actual crashes, unfortunately. Well, the whole industry studies what has happened for the safety of the entire industry, for the safety of people flying on planes. There's no difference between that and what should be happening in the hospital. So as we have learned how to deal with sepsis, for example, early on, which is uh, awful bacteria that could be acquired in a hospital setting or brought into a hospital setting that can kill you, that literally can take your life. Well, we have all kinds of protocols in place for early diagnoses, for early treatment, for testing, and for prescribing medical care if it happens, right? And so... Now, we are very open in sharing our learnings with the rest of the industry. And this is a great example where the government should be inserting itself to say, these are my expectations of the entire healthcare industry, by the way, as the government and also as the biggest purchaser of healthcare. This is what I expect you to be doing in your hospital settings. I guarantee you if they really use the power of their voice and the incentives of how they pay us, we as an entire industry will figure out how to create an industry-wide solution. And that's why I'm saying the focus should be on care. Uh, and so when you talk about universal coverage or Medicare for all, you're still on the coverage equation. But if you tell me, that, um, in fact, the government did it. They said, we're not going to pay you for re-emissions based on mistakes that you've made. You better figure something out. Well, guess what the industry started working on? The elimination of re-emissions by going upstream and figuring out how do you provide the best care first, right? 
And what a smart move for the per for the purchaser to say, I'm not going to pay you for this. What were we going to say? Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> and we end up with a better answer for the American people, which is the most important thing here. And so that's why I emphasize the great work that we should be doing as a system on care delivery and creating more efficiencies and effectiveness that create better outcomes for people who come in and who entrusted their lives uh, in our hands. Question on your management system. Uh, you said you learned to lead by selling and influencing as opposed to having complete control. You see your role as micro-monitor, not micro-manager, trying to find those trends and patterns. Can you walk us through that, your unique <laughs> approach to uh, running this big organization? Yeah. You know, I start first with um, uh, I'm a rare uh, situation where I grew up in the organization that I'm now privileged to serve as the chairman and CEO. So, um, and I've run uh, many parts of Kaiser Permanente. So I know uh, the um, the inner workings of the organization. So they can't is, fool you, right? This is not a philosophical thing for me, and I uh, I often talk about. If you, um, I tell people when I'm mentoring people, I tell people I'm a professional business athlete. That uh, if you ask me to um, stand at the mound and and prepare to hit a ball coming 100 miles an hour, I would freak out because I'm not a professional baseball player. But you put me in a room and you give me a hundred million dollar hospital problem to solve, I'll hit it out the ballpark because that's what I do, as I call it, right? So I understand the workings of the organization. But that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to provide um, and play a role uh, amongst many others who play roles inside of this organization that makes it work and that makes it special. So I have a lane that I'm in, but a lot of other people have their lanes, and all these lanes are critically important to produce the value proposition of Kaiser Permanente. We're all guided by the mission of the organization. So there's no disagreement in our organization, where's North? So the challenge is, how do we all get there and get there together? And so I try to manage and lead at a macro level, but at any time, I can dive deep into the micro. Well, you've made the point that you can walk into a hospital and know in two minutes, is this running right or running wrong? Oh, absolutely. And by the way, I always start with the floor. If the floor isn't shiny and clean, you're going to have a hard visit with Bernard Tyson while I'm in your hospital. Now, fortunately, <laughs> the hospitals are sparkling when I walk in there. You know, I used this term before. <clears throat> when something is really working, there's a rhythm, right? <laughs> there's a rhythm. I mean, and I actually can go into an environment and pick up on the rhythm, and the rhythm tells you a lot, right? The rhythm tells you if the team is working in a cohesive way. The rhythm tells you if you're on top of your game. The rhythm will tell you if you plan, as I call it, against a playbook or you're just making stuff up, right? So there's a rhythm in a hospital setting about how you care for a patient and the oversight of the patient and how people are working together. And even when there are issues, how those issues are managed and handled. And 
you pick up on that and you pick up on it with talking to people and some of the most amazing people um, work in a hospital setting. Some of the most amazing things and complicated things happens in that environment. I used to describe it when I ran a hospital as an environment where you go to where you have the two ends of life happening at the same time. So I go on one floor and I see a family crying because they just brought a beautiful baby in the world. And I go on another floor and there's a family weeping because we just lost a wonderful person. All of that happens inside of the four walls of a, of a hospital. And they're done by the most amazing people. I tell the story often about the time I was going through a health issue. And well, describe the, that. You had open heart surgery yes. like in the year 2000. 2006. And yeah. what, what, what did you learn from that? Well, first, that it is about high tech, high high tech, high touch. Uh, that that will forever uh, be the biggest lesson. I was in a situation. I was waiting, you know, to have surgery the next day, and I had a lot of visitors and well wishers. I was trying to be, as I call it, macho man, and you know, like I'm not worried. I got this. You know, we go. Let's get it on. You know, yep, all this. Yep. And typical, when everybody, guy stuff. yeah, exactly. So everybody <laughs> laughed, and I was in the room by myself, and the nurse was there. And, you know, I began to think about, you know, and was fearful just thinking about, wow, what if, right? Which is what a lot of people think about. What if when something happens to your body that brings you to your knees, like in my situation, you think about different things, the vulnerability of life and all those things. So the nurse came over to check on me, and she looked down on me. And, I, you know, I believe she could sense the fear and everything. She put her hand on top of my hand. That's all. And she lifted it. She walked away. That touch to this day I can feel. It meant everything to me. And I have often said when I got back, when I recovered, that— um, you can't write a procedure for that. That was the highest form of competency that I've ever seen, right? And I can't, you know, as a CEO, write a procedure and say to the organization, so at 210, go touch the patient. That's artificial. What she did was real. It was in the moment. It came from her expertise of understanding her profession, right? And it came from a compassionate, caring individual who knew what to do and did it. So my job uh, is not to try to tell that compassionate person who's already mission-driven how to become mission-driven. My job is to continuously work on creating the environment where that happens. And so uh, I learned that that day from her, and that has helped to educate me of thinking about, do you have everything at your disposal to do what you do? Our high-tech strategy, um, and we are all in, we look at technology as a breath of fresh air for the possibilities, but it will never substitute for the high-touch. And so we talk about we're high-tech, high-touch. 
that's critically important when you think about healthcare. And in closing, Bernard, tell us about the weapon of black coffee. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I I uh, I had an uncle that um, uh, when I was going to go to Gate University, I lived with them for a while in San Francisco, and uh, he's he's just a he was a wonderful uh, uncle and mentor and everything. And he literally used to ride with me sometimes, um, Muni, to uh, school. And in some cases, I had to work during the day and go to school in the evenings. And so he, uh, I used to put a bunch of sugar in my coffee. And so he said, I'm going to teach you how to drink black coffee. And uh, black coffee, he said, yeah, black coffee. He said, because uh, you're going to be a tough uh, businessman. And when you drink black coffee, and you're negotiating deals in the future, you will put the fear of God in the person that you're negotiating with and everything. So he used to talk to me, and he believed that sincerely. So he used to buy me uh, old-fashioned glazed donut, and he would have me to eat some of the donut and then drink the black coffee. And then he started to have me to eat less and less of the donut until I acquired the taste of black coffee. And to this day, I cannot put sugar in my coffee. Number one, because it doesn't taste right. And number two, because I still believe in his philosophy that you look tougher when you're drinking black coffee. And so that's the story behind that. (laughs) Bernard Tyson, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bernard Tyson, former chairman and CEO of Kaiser Permanente. His untimely passing makes his observations and his pioneering spirit more poignant than ever before. Let us hope that even though he is gone, what he stood for will still move ahead. And now, my reads of the week. First one comes from an editorial in the Wall Street Journal on WSJ.com. The title says it all. Hong Kong's freedom message. They recently had elections and the Democrats won overwhelmingly. Another piece. This will sound controversial. I keep hammering on it, but by golly, it still gets drowned out. This piece is called Vaping is Still Safer Than Smoking. That message is getting dangerously muddled. The piece is written by Julia Bellas on Vox.com. That's V-O-X.com. And finally, a piece called Boost the Economy's Fortunes by Passing USMCA. USMCA, of course, stands for U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, otherwise known as NAFTA II. It's written by Chris Jan. That's J-A-H-N. You can find this piece on WashingtonExaminer.com. Chris makes the point that free traders and others make, and that is, this agreement will help the economies of the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. The sooner it's passed, the better for all of us. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 